are listening to KHOL. This is Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Coming up on today's show, author Jonathan Thompson discusses his new book, Sagebrush Empire, about the front line in the battle over American public lands. It was a heated time in San Juan County. Plus, a recap from K-12's coverage of Treefort Music Festival in Boise last month. I know for myself, music is a refuge that I can come to to heal and get away from the noise of the world. But first, multiple whistleblowers have alleged over the past decade that state and military leadership has failed victims of workplace hostility and sexual assault within the Wyoming National Guard. A joint investigation from the nonprofit publication Wildfile and Wyoming Public Media found specifically that women's complaints often fell on deaf ears and solicited retaliation. To learn more, K2L's Will Walkie interviewed the three authors of the recent investigation, Jennifer Coker, Camila Kudelska, and Tennessee Watson. Jennifer, Tennessee, and Camila, thank you so much for joining me and for talking with KHOL about this reporting. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having us. Could, could one of you just outline a little bit some of exactly the types of discrimination and retaliation some of the women that you interviewed for this story are facing? I, I, I can start there. Um, there was a general consensus of three of the women that I had spoken to, they were in the position to report sexual assaults and sexual harassment and discrimination to a, a smaller degree. And in all cases, they felt that once they brought those cases or attempted to bring those cases up the chain of command and through the process as dictated, that they were then, it wasn't a private process as it was supposed to be. And they were either discouraged from reporting. Um, and, and by that, I mean, uh, the people they would t- tell the, to their direct superiors would say, I don't think that's necessarily as serious as you think it is. It was kind of degrees of seriousness as it, based on subjective judgment. And, and then it was retaliation for that. Camilla, in, in, your, in your Wyoming public media story, one of your characters talked about when she came forward, her supervisor and the person that she was talking to sort of mentioned things like, alcoholism and just classic kind of deflecting blame toward her um, rather than toward something else, it seems like. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so Jenny Rigg uh, was someone, as Jen mentioned, who actually had the power to help um, certain airmen be able to um, report sexual harassment and sexual assault and she struggled when just trying to help them report her commanders were telling her that she shouldn't do this. Uh, And it got worse when she tried to report her own sexual harassment. And that's where it kind of came to what Jen was talking about, which is like personal retaliation and what you were referring to. That's when the commanders started really reflect deflecting on her personal issues that had nothing to do whether she was truly sexually harassed or not. Um, And I I think to what Jen was saying earlier, you know, in most cases, these women were retaliated in the way that they weren't able to do their job anymore. And they all really, really care about the work that they were doing. They wanted to help and serve the United States 
um, through the National Guard, through what they were doing. And I think that was always with at least Jenny, it was for sure one of the main reasons why she felt compelled to try to figure out a solution to this because she felt like she wasn't the airmen weren't getting the service that they needed from her. So I want to talk a little bit about how this situation changes moving forward. Tennessee, you mentioned the state legislature. I'm curious, what, what, what can they actually do to help the situation like this? And do you have a sense that that might happen moving forward this year? Yeah, I reached out to um, some national experts that are working on this issue in other states because Wyoming is not alone um, with this challenge. And um, some of the folks I talked to suggested simpler things, like if the legislature would require quarterly reports from the Guard, um, you know, how many complaints are we getting and what are you doing about them? How many of them are investigated? How many of them lead um, to some kind of consequence or punishment. And just being able to watch the, the flow in of allegations and then how they're processed. Um, but of course, that's you know not a solution in and of itself. I know that Vermont tried something similar where public officials admitted like, yeah, we, we were getting those reports from our guard, but we weren't necessarily looking at them. So of course, in addition to requiring um, reporting from the Guard, it would have to be a priority on the part of the legislature to review that. They would they would need to see themselves um, as a body with the power to hold the Guard to account. They do have on their agenda for the November meeting of the Committee of Transportation, Highways, and Military that they will discuss these issues. I'm just curious, had any of you reported on anything remotely like this before? And you know, I, I'm just curious what it was like reporting on something that to me was just so, so sad and so serious as well. I've, d- I've done reporting like this before. Um, I think there's similarities between this story about the guard and um, reporting that I've done about campus sexual assault. Um, it also reminds me of issues faced by Native American communities that you know, in all three of those examples, whether it's campus sexual assault, what's happening with the National Guard, or missing and murdered Indigenous people, perpetrators operate with impunity because of these jurisdictional issues. Sort of like, whose job is this? Not my job, it's that person's job. And a lot of like, passing it around. So yeah, it, 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 it's definitely challenging terrain. Um, and I, and I think it's, you know, it's challenging because to me, the way not to tarnish your reputation is to do a good job and follow through when people say that they're harmed. But I think there's this inclination on the part of people in positions of power that they don't even want to admit that it's happening under their watch. And that feels like there needs to be a bigger cultural shift, which says like, your tarnish, your your reputation isn't tarnished because it happens. It's tarnished because of how you respond to it. And I think until we get to that place as a culture um, where we're really like clued into accountability and addressing harm and finding pathways to repair, like people are gonna be able to continue to get away with this stuff. Tennessee, Jennifer, and Camila, thank you so much for joining KHOL for talking about this reporting. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you very much.
You can also find an extended version of Cage Wells' interview with journalists Jennifer Coker, Camila Kudelska, and Tennessee Watson on our website, 891kwl.org. The full investigation into the Wyoming National Guard can be found at wildfile.com, and an audio version is available at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Like so many other events these days, it was unclear for a while whether the Treefort Music Festival would make a comeback in Boise this year. But last month, it finally happened. K-12 Music Director Jack Catlin was there and brings us this recap of a weekend of interviews with artists from Wyoming and across the country. As I arrived in downtown Boise for the first of five days at Treefort, the pent-up energy among fans, vendors, and artists was immediately tangible. This year's Treefort might have been held in late September, but it had all the makings of a classic midsummer music festival, complete with hot asphalt, cold beverages, sweaty wristbands, and a diversity of style, sound, and ethnicity. Getting down to business, my first artist interview was with Seattle's Delvon Lamar organ trio. The group reflected on the lineage of the city's funk and soul scene and how much of that is indebted to the black church. You know, and I mean, you had groups like out of Tacoma and stuff like that. And, you know, Hendrix was involved playing a group like places like the East Side Hall and stuff like that. And his group, the Rocking Kings or the Velvet Tones, they played in those sort of situations where they would play stuff by the coasters and, you know, the popular top 40 hits of the day, you know. I mean, that's I mean, a long like, lineage there, uh, you know. But it's really cool to look back and, you know, the people that influenced, inspired you guys. It's great. Yeah, soul music, I mean, when you think about soul music and where it came from, it came from the church. You know, I mean, everybody from Sam Cooke to Aretha Franklin to the Godfather saw all those people sang in church. I also got to hear about a very different music scene in Laramie, Wyoming, from the Americana band Ten Cent Stranger. Singer-guitarist Bob Lefevre says the relatively small number of creative outlets in Wyoming can actually help musicians grow. You know, and I think there's there's always been a lot of really cool music in Wyoming, and I think that Wyoming, you know, there's not that many people, so I think people get exposed to more different types of music than they do in other places, where it's very easy to just go see the one subgenre of music that you like if you live in a big city, and if you're in Wyoming, if you want to see music, you, that's not really an option, you just kind of see what you can see, and I think that that makes for some really interesting bands and musicians. Another Wyoming artist, Jay Shogren of Centennial talked with KHOL about how his unique professional life influences his music. Shogren is a Nobel Prize-winning economics professor at the University of Wyoming and an accomplished singer-songwriter inspired by punk and polka. To me, science and art go together. I mean, you need the science to sort of dissect a song and what's going to work and to edit things and not just... Uh, have a two free form and and with science you need the art to be able to explore new ideas and step outside the box and step outside the the rigor that science demands so that you can have one of those aha moments and i think that for me makes my science more creative and it makes my art more reined in let's put it that way indie space rock band speed the pilgrim of casper wyoming also performed at treefort Sadly, they played with the trademark pink guitar of fallen band member Seth McGee. 
who passed away last spring. Bassist Travis Winchell explained why the group felt like they had to perform in McGee's honor. He was so excited to, to come to this show, so uh, when he passed in the spring, we took some time off and had a discussion. We're like, there's, 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 there's no other option. We have to go do this for Seth, if, if, if for no other reason. So um, being here for him has been, I mean, bittersweet, certainly, but uh, it feels great to be able to kind of bring a piece of him here with us with that guitar. Uh, his, his niece uh, was kind enough to let us borrow that. And, uh, Not only is music helping artists deal with personal loss, but it's helping others process the movement for racial justice and social unrest. Speaking from the front yard of an Airbnb in suburban Boise, front woman Lalin St. Just of the national act The Session reflected on how isolating herself with the music she loves has provided some relief during the pandemic. I know for myself, music is a refuge that I can come to to heal and get away from the noise of the world and process everything. And so a lot of times when things are really heavy, I'm in my room you know, singing and trying to figure out how to continue moving forward as a black person in this country. And just like in general, like this world is pretty intense. So I'm just really always excited to really let it out in the creative process. The session's percussionist, Mirza Kopelman, also shared his frustration with how little seems to have changed in musical activism over the years. When I listen to music like Old Soul or like Bob Marley, different artists saying the same message of trying to break through and make the change that we need. And there's something that helps to listen to that music. And then there's something that also makes me kind of sad to listen to that music and see that we're not that much farther along in figuring out how to dismantle this system that we live in. Still, whether the music at Treefort this year was helping the crowd process grief, anger, or just a year plus of social distancing, it turned out to be an enriching weekend full of pleasant surprises and re-established truths. Bouncing around to all the different and unique venues was a cathartic experience for all those that waited so long to see live music on that scale again. I returned back to Jackson with a renewed appreciation for what it means to be an artist and a deeper understanding of how important it is for them to share their talents with the world. For more in-depth interviews from our experience at the Treefort Music Festival in Boise, make sure to visit 891khol.org. I'm Jack Catlin, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm news director Kyle Mackey, and this is our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up next, the new book, Sagebrush Empire, by Western writer Jonathan Thompson, details the long-standing fight over public lands in southeastern Utah. Justin Higginbottom of KZMU in Moab 
spoke with the author about the roots of the conflict and what to expect after the recent restoration of Bears Ears National Monument. Thompson has a long history of traveling the high deserts of San Juan County. He grew up nearby in Durango, Colorado, and began hitting the trails pretty much from birth. After I was born, my parents started taking me camping over there in Comwash and Arch Canyon and those sorts of places pretty much before I could remember, before I could walk probably. Like that was my go-to place, you know, for the desert. Pretty much still is. Later, as a journalist, he covered the region, its history of racism, land disputes, and culture clashes between the Native community and their white neighbors. In his new book, Sagebrush Empire, he details the long-simmering conflict over land, and he begins with an illustrative case known as Gategate. So Gategate was this kind of incident that happened in 2017. It was a heated time in San Juan County. Just a few months earlier, Barack Obama had created Bears Ears National Monument after a pretty bitter debate. Soon after Donald Trump was sworn in, it was understood that monument would likely be reduced. But basically some retirees from Durango, they went camping over in Valley of the Gods, which at the time was in Bears Ears National Monument. And one of them, Rose Chilcoat, um, was a pretty active environmentalist with the Great Old Broads for Wilderness. The Great Old Broads have been very active in San Juan County, trying to kind of curb public lands grazing, trying to deal with ATVs in the backcountry, that sort of thing. And a lot of people didn't like those Chilcoat in San Juan County. So they went over there. Her husband, Mark Franklin, closed a gate on a corral for reasons that aren't totally clear. Basically, he just did it. But uh, he closed a great gate on a corral. They didn't think anything of it. They left. And a few days later, they were driving back past that corral. And these cowboys came and ran out and sort of stopped them from going further down the road and called the sheriff. And they were accused of trying to kill the cattle by closing the gate and cutting off access to the cattle's water. Eventually, they were charged with felonies. They could have gone to prison. And the legal saga actually continues to drag on. And kind of no matter how you look at it, the severity of the charges were a form of political retribution against Rose Chilcote and her activism. It was just one skirmish in what's been referred to as the Sagebrush Rebellion. It's a fight for control over land that goes back over 100 years and has many iterations and battles. The intensity ebbs and flows. Thompson says cattle ranchers and those fighting for more local control were emboldened after Trump's win. But it's unclear where that energy will go under Biden. I mean, it's really interesting because when Biden got elected, then he comes in and says he's going to do all these things like uh, restore the national monuments. And, and so far, we haven't seen the kind of backlash that we saw from Obama. And the reasons for that, you know, I, I honestly don't know what it is. Like, certainly there's opposition to it. There's some backlash, but it's not as bitter or as angry as it was before. Although that's so far, the restoration of Bears Ears National Monument could be a new flashpoint. And Thompson has seen a growth in activism on the other side of the fight, those looking to expand federal protection, especially from the Native community. The indigenous movement has blossomed in the last really five, six years. You know, I mean, it, it was there. I mean, it's been there since the, the American Indian movement, really in the 70s. Um, but it certainly was revived. You had Standing Rock, you had Bears Ears, you had all these kind of things going on where indigenous activists were taking the lead and the 
mainstream environmental groups were kind of following along. You can pick up Sagebrush Empire at your local bookstore. Thompson also has a newsletter covering public lands called The Land Desk. Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News. Our last story today is part of our ongoing reporting collaboration with the Solutions Journalism Network and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, highlighting affordable housing solutions across the Mountain West. High housing prices mean local workers are getting priced out of communities all across our region. But one nonprofit in Southwest Colorado is trying to make small town housing affordable by turning to factory built homes. Matt Hoish of KOTO in Telluride reports. Housing takes time. Kiefer Perino knows this. He's been working on one affordable housing development for local workers since before the pandemic. It's been a couple years versus a couple months in the making. Perino is the mayor of Norwood, Colorado. The roughly 600-person town is shaping up to be the first to get about two dozen deed-restricted workforce housing units from a new initiative launched by a local nonprofit, the Telluride Foundation. They're taking a simple but potentially powerful approach, building houses for less money. If you work backwards from a teacher in Norwood, they're making $41,000, they can afford a $180,000 home. That's Paul Major, president and CEO of the foundation. Can we actually deliver a $180,000 three-bedroom, two-bath, two-car garage home? To get the cost down, Major breaks it into three buckets, land, financing, and construction. When it comes to land, the foundation is trying to get it for free. San Miguel County has donated the parcel of land in Norwood. For financing, a mix of public and private donors have put forth low-cost capital. Finally, there's construction. The first thing that comes onto an on-site construction project is the dumpster, because 30% of all materials that come onto a construction site are waste. They turn out to be waste. To solve that problem, the foundation has turned to off-site construction. Homes are pre-built in a factory and essentially installed onto the site. David Bruce manages the housing initiative for the foundation. He says that off-site building can reduce construction costs per square foot by about 75 percent. And he adds, there's nothing new about the approach. People have been talking about that since the 60s. And one of the reasons it hasn't sort of taken on this effect and and revolutionized the construction industry the way, you know, uh, Ford Assembly Line has is because, you know, there's a huge advantage just to you and me going to a building site, bringing some lumber with us, and there's a flexibility to build on site that is actually hard to calibrate and, and line up once you prefabricate everything. For an existing example, he suggests I look into another similar large-scale development called The Farm in Buena Vista, Colorado. So, I do. Micah Salazar, I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Fading West Development. Fading West Development is the developer behind The Farm. So far, Salazar says, they've built 86 houses using off-site construction, and all of them have sold for between roughly $200,000 and $500,000. And he notes, even though they're not deed-restricted, a little more than 80% of the people living in them are part of the local workforce. We really can't build them fast enough at this point. 
the best way that I can put it, 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 the impact has just been huge. Duff Lacey is the mayor of Buena Vista. He says he hasn't heard anything negative from his constituents about the farm, but he notes the factory-built units are still a couple hundred thousand dollars. So he thinks they're not a cure for all the region's housing challenges, but they fill a void. There's still a gap, but this is definitely taking care of a sector that is looking for housing. Of course, there's no guarantee the Telluride Foundation homes will sell as quickly as the Buena Vista ones, but Major is confident. A study found there's pent-up demand for over 30 affordable homes in Norwood, more than the foundation plans to help build. They're also working on similar projects in nearby Nucla, Ridgeway, and Uray. All in all, the projects could result in over 100 new deed-restricted homes for local workforces. And, if all goes well, more could follow. We see this as an opportunity to uh, potentially see this work in a pilot format and potentially scale this in other parts of rural Colorado that need uh, new housing construction. Rick Garcia is the executive director of the Colorado Department of Local Affairs. He says once they see one or two of the projects completed and homeowners moving in, the state is prepared to help other communities take a similar approach. The Telluride Foundation hopes to break ground in Norwood next year and have folks moving in by fall 2022. For KOTO and the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, I'm Matt Hoish. And now for the weekly news roundup. Here are the headlines you might have missed this week. The autopsy results for Gabby Petito indicate she was strangled to death. Teton County Coroner Dr. Brent Blue announced in a press conference Tuesday that Petito's body was in the wilderness for three to four weeks before it was discovered near Grand Teton National Park September 19th. The intense media coverage of the young woman's disappearance and death during a cross-country trip with her boyfriend is also drawing criticism from Blue. He says similar cases of domestic violence don't receive enough attention. Unfortunately, uh, this is only one of many deaths uh, around the country of uh, people who are involved in domestic violence. I'm assuming that because the deceased was a blogger that this received more coverage uh, than others, but uh, there are a lot of of both men and women who have lost their lives and aren't covered with this kind of media attention. Some state lawmakers are drafting legislation to combat Joe Biden's vaccine mandate and are trying to call a special session to work on potential bills. The Democratic coalition of the state legislature, including Representative Mike Yin of Jackson, has already come out against any calls for a special session. It's not very specific on whether it's for federal mandates, for state mandates, or or as such. And so without that specificity and and the Democratic caucus don't really think it's the type of emergency that requires the legislature to come into session, um, we, we came out pretty fully opposed to it. Yin also says each day the legislature is in session costs Wyoming taxpayers $25,000. Plus, any laws drafted by state lawmakers will likely go against what comes out of the federal government, putting businesses in a bind where they're constantly breaking some sort of law. The phenomenon of so-called pink taxes on products marketed to women has been well documented when it comes to goods like toiletries and clothing. Discriminatory pricing means that women pay more than men for essentially the same products. That includes cars, according to a new study, 
and the state with the worst vehicle pink tax, Wyoming. Wyoming women actually have the largest yearly difference in what women are paying compared to men. And that was $183 per year on average. Lakshmi Iyengar is the data lead at Jerry, the car app and licensed insurance broker that conducted the new study. The study doesn't definitively answer the question of why this is happening, but Iyengar says one possible explanation is that women often have lower credit scores than men because of the gender wage gap. She also encourages women to do their own research on how much cars and repairs should cost before agreeing to a price, and to shop around when it comes to insurance. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strumbucket. Subscribe now to Jackson Unpacked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.